0: Before we begin today, I'd like to just read the text for you. Starting with verse 14, and we'll continue through verse 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day... He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to as <clears throat> excuse me, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written: The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the, in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy, excuse me, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, And took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that you've shown to us in your Son, the Messiah. Father, as we come together today and we open your word, we want first and foremost to see you. We want to interact with you. We want to know you. Father, protect us from human opinion, whether mine or others that may have influenced me or influenced us as we hear. But we want to have your word spoken to our hearts and illuminated by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see in this text what Luke wants us to see, knowing that what Luke wants us to see is what you have put in his heart by your inspiration. And Lord, as we do this, help us to walk away with something that changes us, that transforms us inside. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into this text today... We're going to see a number of things, but but first and foremost, we're going to see some uh, some key things in the life of Jesus. And as we do this, we see his return to his hometown. Uh, these key elements that we're going to pull out are central to Luke's purpose for the letter. That's something we always want to make sure as we're interpreting Scripture according to Scripture. We want to take a look at what is the author's overall intent. What is the purpose? of this book. So as we're looking at what Luke is writing, he's telling us, Luke's is pretty easy because he tells us right away in chapter one, I'm writing this so that you can know the certainty of what you've been taught. So that you can know and have a confidence in your faith. Not so much in your faith in the mystical way that we tend to make it out, you know, that you have the strength of belief and so on, but the doctrine." The faith, the things that you've been taught, what you have believed, what you have accepted as true to govern your life. And as Luke uh, records these things, everything in this story is building to that point, building to this idea of giving a confident faith. So we're going to look at this, we're going to see what Jesus does and what happens to him here uh, then after we get done with that, we're going to draw some insight for our own lives from what we see in this scene. Now, as we look here, Jesus is doing what he always did. It was his custom to go and join them in the synagogue. It was his custom to go along uh, with the people to gather in the, in, in the gathering place of God's people on the Sabbath. They called it the synagogue. You can think of it as church like we would do here. It would have been really easy for Jesus to turn his back on that and say, look, I've come to set things straight. The church has become corrupt. It's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. People are are not what they're supposed to be. And that would be absolutely true. But he doesn't do that. Despite the actual corruption, the actual hypocrisy that takes place in the church, Jesus attends anyway. He goes and he gathers with God's people. There's something for us to see in that already. It's important for us to be among the people of God, in the place of God, in the gathering place on the day of the Lord. So as he does this, Jesus is doing just what everybody else is used to doing, only Jesus brings an element of authority and truth. He's coming not just to go along with what everybody has, has said, with all the religious teachings, but to get down to what God says. He ought to know. He wrote it. Now, when Jesus does this, it, again, it would be easy for him to say, well, I don't need to go to church. I'm not being fed. Right? You've probably heard that before. They're not bringing truth the way Jesus already knew the truth. He knew more than his teachers. He also knew that very often the scriptures were being watered down, manipulated. That happened. If it hadn't happened, the the world wouldn't have been in the situation it was in. Israel wouldn't have been in the situation it was in. But it did. And Jesus didn't turn his back on it because he wasn't being fed. He went and participated. And when he wasn't being fed, he did the feeding. Jesus here does... A normal thing he stands up it was a, a typical part of the synagogue gathering that uh, uh, someone in the congregation um, a man would stand up read the scriptures from the prescribed scrolls and very often uh, if, if a priest was present he would be a part of the prayers with it but as they would read these scriptures uh, a guest speaker uh, or a, a prominent leader in the community would speak up and give the sermon. So we could do that here, just kind of rotate the sermon around and start pulling you guys up here and, and we can read the scriptures together and then have a sermon. Well, Jesus is doing that. He's participating normally in this. So what makes today different for Jesus is he's been going around the region of Galilee. He's been going to all of these different synagogues and doing these, these typical things but now, he's in his hometown. Today, he's home again, among his own people, his family, the people he grew up with. And everybody's excited. Everybody's fired up. They want to see Jesus. Uh, you know, he kind of become something of a celebrity. He's the hotshot now, this uh, preacher that is growing up uh, before their eyes. And now he's the sensation. Everybody's talking about Jesus. They they want to get in on this. They want to see how their local homegrown talent is performing. So with him being uh, this celebrity, people are talking about about Jesus throughout the whole countryside. He's become recognized as an authoritative teacher, sort of a synagogue sensation, and he's been performing miraculous signs and wonders. We know that because they say do here, or he's telling them that they will say, do hear what you have done in Capernaum. So he's already been doing miraculous signs and wonders. Luke doesn't record it here, but uh, there's uh, a section of John that probably fits right into this particular thing. Uh, So he's been doing these signs. He's been preaching. The region is abuzz. Now the hometown crowd can't wait to see their boy show his stuff. The problem (laughs) becomes when Jesus gets very, very real with them. They're fired up about his fame. Because it's their fame, vicariously. But the moment he gets real, everything falls apart. This, this dynamic is not unfamiliar in our day and age. This is a pretty normal thing. Everybody loves the hometown hero until that hometown hero outgrows the hometown. To the extent that her fame elevates us or his success benefits us, we love them. Just don't let them get too big for their britches. We like to ride the coattails of those people who climb the heights until we get reminded that we didn't climb the heights. Until it no longer benefits us. You know, I've watched this play out here in our community for many years. We see these things happen. We get this idea. Who does he think he is? Who does she think she is? Does she think she's better than us? We love to see the local kids do well until their success seems to point to our own lack of it. We want what they have. We want the celebrity. We want the wealth, the power, the success, as long as it makes us feel good about ourselves. But let it make us feel bad about ourselves and we're ready to see them crushed, crucified, if you will. We like our local heroes to be just successful enough but not too successful. We love to see their star rise as long as they carry us with them, but we are a little less happy when we start to focus on ourselves. And we are the first to stick a pin in their balloon. To paraphrase Willem Defoe's Green Goblin as he gloats over Spider-Man, people love to see the hero, but what they love to see more is to see the hero fall, fail die trying. Especially that local hero. Especially when we can prove that they're no better than we are. You know, as I mentioned, I've watched this unfold numerous times but perhaps none more strikingly than with one of my sister's friends from school. It's a girl I used to pick up for Sunday school and youth group. After high school she became a model, found some success eventually uh, posed for Playboy magazine and she won Playmate of the Year. She became one of the most popular playmates ever, one of the most uh, looked at, talked about, sought after women in the world. It was very interesting to see the mix of, hey, I know her. We were super close back in the day. And the holier-than-thou judgment that swirled about our little community. People who had no relationship with her whatsoever wanted to bask in her glory some of you know some of you may have been those people others who might have been called friends in the past were quick to put her down to point out her flaws many ended up playing both sides to the middle they would sidle up to her uh, and try to get close to her when when they could and then they'd end up bashing her behind her back, pouncing on every salacious rumor that might come along, whether true or mythical. <laughs> you know, that's 20 years ago. And it's still going on. I still see the same thing. People trying to keep down the person who's trying to better themselves. People judging someone's, someone else's sin while at the same time, trying to gain their notoriety. There's so many two-faced people, we ought to double the population records. If her glow made us appear brighter, then by all means, shine on, but don't you dare outshine us? How dare you? Who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? We knew you when. Yes, the success of others, especially those we see as peers, often highlights our insecurities. Well, in Luke 4, Jesus is dealing with the same thing. Only the dividing line is not merely fame or fortune, but truth. Truth divides. It always has, and it always will. The Nazareth locals are insulted, but the insult is ultimately the reality of the gospel. The truth of who Jesus is and being confronted with their own shortcomings. They would love for Jesus to be the Messiah as long as he's their Messiah. They love the, the celebrity as long as he's on a leash, their own little pet miracle worker. They aren't angered by his claim to be Messiah by saying Isaiah's messianic prophecy is fulfilled in him, but they're furious that he won't perform for them. And even more so, that he could compare them to Gentile dogs, which is what he does in his statement to them. We'll see that in just a moment. They are murderously enraged that he would suggest that they're not better or more special than others and that they don't deserve God's special favor. They are displaying well the core reality for today's message. It's the the single thing that kind of draws this all together, puts it right in the heart of Luke's overall message for the book. It's this, God's grace is for those who receive it, not those who deserve it. Say that with me. God's grace is for those who receive it, not those who deserve it. Let's do it again. You can make your little fancy air quotes as we go through there. God's grace is for those who receive it, not those who deserve it. Because who deserves God's grace? God's grace nobody does. That's what makes it grace. That's the point. Grace is unearned favor. You don't deserve it or it wouldn't be grace. You deserve your wages. You do work, you get paid. You break the law, you pay the fine. That's that's what you earn. That's what you deserve. That's your wages. Grace isn't like that. And they're bothered by this reality that God's grace is is for those who receive it, not those who think they deserve it, who are connected or have some special in. It's not about that at all. It's not about your background. It's not about your performance. It's about God, His character, His His loving offer of grace to those who have nothing else, who have no leg to stand on to the last, the least, and the lost. So, as we see this, the people are impressed with Jesus' abilities. They're they're fired up about his eloquence. They're amazed by the gracious words from his lips. He's the hot preacher of the day. If he had a book, it would be the biggest book. If he had a blog, it would be the hottest blog. If he were on social media, you get where I'm going here. Jesus is the thing, and they're into that until they realize that it's not the thing, it's the gospel. It's the truth of God's word. And who Jesus is, isn't who they expect him to be. The people turn on Jesus for a couple of reasons here. Write these down. The People turn on Jesus because the gospel comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. The gospel comforts the afflicted And afflicts the comfortable. This is why they turn on him. Jesus reads from Isaiah. And he says, I'm here to proclaim this good news to the poor. (laughs) Not to all y'all who think you got it going on. It comforts the afflicted. Those who are downtrodden. Those who are put upon. Those who have nothing. God offers them everything. But those who are comfortable, those who are in themselves feeling strong, they feel sufficient. They've got life together. They've got it figured out. They're successful in their career. They know that their lives please God in the way that they act because they're good moral people and they don't pose for Playboy or buy Playboy or talk about Playboy during sermons. They don't do any of those things. So they must be holy. The gospel makes those people very holy very uncomfortable secondly the people turn on Jesus because the presence of truth alienates those who prefer the lie the presence of truth alienates those who prefer the lie truth always divides this is why Jesus said you think that I came to bring peace but I really came to bring a sword to divide homes what kind of Jesus says I came to divide homes that's what he says not because he wants homes to split up but because he wants homes to be grounded in truth and you cannot have truth and a lie living together the presence of truth alienates those who prefer the lie let's let's walk through this text together Let's see exactly what he's saying. So as as Jesus is going through that that's music, we don't need music. Okay. As Jesus is going through this, we see that he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. All right? So this is verse 14. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, remember, he just came from this wilderness experience. He went from the this incredible pinnacle, this fantastic high point of being baptized among the people, and God the Father speaking audibly from heaven. You might note this doesn't happen every day. It didn't happen at my baptism. Did it happen at any of yours? Probably not. God does not speak audibly very often. But here he does in chapter 2. And as Jesus is identified... By the, by the Father himself as the Son in whom he is well pleased, we see the Holy Spirit show up in visible form. You might notice the Holy Spirit isn't in visible form very often. Spirit, invisible. But here in this story of Christ's baptism, he shows up where people can see him manifest. A little mind-blowing. So Jesus comes off of this incredible pinnacle into the desert and 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Not only is he fasting in the wilderness, but he's being directly face-to-face, mano a mano, hand-to-hand, attacked by the devil. He's being directly confronted by the prince of darkness. And in the midst of this, Jesus is physically weakened but spiritually strengthened and in this battle he gains experience in the victory that causes him to be even more confident not confident in himself in his flesh but confident in the father whom he serves and in the power of the spirit and the effectiveness of god's word so jesus now coming out of this wilderness experience He enters Galilee, the region that he is from, and he's filled with the power of the Spirit. Excuse me. For ourselves, as we test God's word and spirit through application, we find him faithful and we're better able to walk in him. It's not that we're more confident in ourselves, but when we have tested him, not tested in the sense of, well, let's see if God's good enough, but tested him, when God says jump and we jump and we find that he catches us, we become more confident in his ability to catch us. If he says jump and I'll catch you and I don't jump, how confident do you think I will become? I won't. I have to test it. I have to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I have to jump and say, Lord, if you don't catch me, I splatter. It's you or nothing. It's all you or I die. There is no other option. And when I do that and he catches me, the confidence in him skyrockets. That is how we grow our faith. It's not a matter of I need to be better. It's a matter of I just need to do it. And the more I do it, the stronger my faith becomes. And the less I do it, the weaker my faith becomes. So, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news spread about him uh, all throughout the whole countryside. As he does this, they are noticing that he's different. His teaching is different. His mannerisms are different. He doesn't speak like the other teachers that they're used to, but with a particular authority as one who isn't just trained to say the right things, but one who is the right person. If you've ever been in the room with someone who, uh, who just exudes confidence, if you've walked into a, uh, a, a general who has been in combat, there's a certain level of, of, dare I say, swagger to it. Maybe that's a little too much for me to say. But there's a confidence that you know you are in the room with somebody not somebody who just came out of the academy and they've been trained and they know all the stuff to say and maybe they've got a little bit of rank on their shoulder, but somebody who's been there, who has been through it, who has seen it. I think of uh, Mel Gibson's movie, We Were Soldiers. Some of you have seen that. Some of you are too young to see R-rated movies. If you have seen that movie or read that book or you know that story, the picture in my mind of that confidence is uh, Sam Elliott's sergeant major. He doesn't care about anything, nobody is going to get in his way. It really doesn't matter if you outrank him or not, he knows who he is and he stands in that strength. This is the sort of authority that Jesus has. It's not just about rank. It's about the person. He has the relationship authority. He has the experience authority. And he does indeed have the rank authority. So they're marveling about him. He's teaching in their synagogues. Everyone's praising him. He goes to Nazareth in verse 16. This is where he grew up. On the Sabbath day went into the synagogues, as was his normal custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, interestingly, Luke focuses on the first part of this passage, but there's another part to it. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He didn't choose the text. God did. Jesus didn't choose the te- he didn't choose the scroll. But he did choose the text within the scroll. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Okay, And he gives this this next prophecy. So he opens the scroll of Isaiah. That was the appointed scroll for that day. And he goes through it and he finds these verses. Now, he's reading from Isaiah 61. You can start turning there because I want you to see this. You can keep uh, Luke marked because we'll be back. But I want you to see what he's actually reading here from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 61... He's reading the first couple of verses here. And this is in a passage in a section uh, that all of the people recognized as messianic. The rabbis had taught this for a long time. This is a passage that refers to the Messiah. It's a prophecy of who he will be. And Jesus reads this, and here's what he says. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then this next portion that Luke doesn't quote. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And it continues It's interesting here that as Jesus is identifying with this messianic passage, nobody's freaking out. Now, if they really were concerned, as the Pharisees would later claim to be, concerned about blasphemy, about this false teacher claiming to be the Son of God, why wouldn't they be bothered by this? They're caught up in the moment. They're less concerned about defending God's honor than they are about the popularity and fame. Hey, look at our preacher. He's pretty good. man. He's slick. He can say the right things the right way. Wow. So when he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, what he's saying is, this is me. I'm standing here proclaiming to you that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. Anybody who says that Jesus did not claim to be the Son of God has not read the New Testament. It is very clear. And if you are a a Jew at the time in the synagogue, there is absolutely no question that he's talking about himself as Messiah. Notice, though, there's an underlying theme. While Luke doesn't quote that last portion of the verse, it's there. You see, the gospel is good news for those who will fall down before God. But it's really, really bad news for those who puff themselves up and think they somehow have it together. Jesus is declaring this good news to the poor, but notice at the end of verse 2 in Isaiah 61, it's not just to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the year of the Lord's favor here is coupled together inextricably with the day of vengeance of our God. God will bring justice. Now, that sounds great if you're on the side of justice. If you're a good guy who's being victimized, you've been put upon by the bad people, you're really, really happy when Batman shows up. But if you're not, if you're the bad guy, that's a very bad feeling. This is why Batman likes to strike fear in people. So Jesus here says, look, this is the good news, that God's favor is here. But when God brings this to completion, those who are on the outside, those who have rejected his grace, his vengeance will fall on them. There is a hardness in their hearts. Because of this hardness in their hearts, they fall on that side of the vengeance. Luke is very excited about this. About this gospel for the outsider. That's, as we have mentioned before, going to be his theme. That's the part that he emphasizes more than any of the other evangelists. As he's going through the life of Christ, he focuses in on... As Jesus mentioned it in Luke 19:10, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That he's reaching out to the, the leper and the criminal and the sinner, the dogs, as the other religious Jews would call them, the Gentiles, those who are outside. The gospel's for outsiders and dod- downtrodden people. And Luke is going to emphasize this throughout the book. And you know, the interesting thing is that seems to be exactly what sets off the hometown insiders. It's not the Messiah claim, it's that this is for those outside. You don't have special favor, you don't get a VIP seat in heaven because you are part of the synagogue, because you're from my hometown, because you're a Jew. Because you're a Hebrew. Because you're an American. Because you go to real life. There are no special seats in heaven. He's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference, by the way, to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus. Uh, Those of you who are with us on that journey, that was a lot of fun. This this 50th year... One of the things that God built into his law to balance the scales of justice is that after seven sevens of years, seven Sabbaths of years, uh, this 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all debts are canceled. All slaves are set free. That was built into the law. We think of the Old Testament God as this harsh and terrible thing. This is the balancing the scales of justice that God built in in Leviticus. To say on this year, and slavery was a little different at that time. Israel didn't have slaves because of those they brought into captivity so much as debts and so on. It was not in any way like the transatlantic slave trade. Don't get me wrong. Slavery is still not great. But as they're doing this, God says, okay, whether your debt is paid or not, in this year, nobody is a slave anymore. All slaves are set free. Whether your debt is paid or not, all debts are canceled. Period. Well, wait a minute. This person owes a lot of money, and this person just owes a little bit of money. They're they're almost done paying their debt off. doesn't matter. This is a picture of God's grace for everyone. Not those who deserve it, but specifically those who know that they do not. That's the point. That's what he's getting at. So he rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to them, and he sits down. He sits down, symbolizing that he's finished. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue are fastened on him. They're impressed with him. They're enamored with his talent. But notice in just a moment, they'll be insulted by his truth. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's the first time in Luke that he declares himself to be Messiah. And all still speak well of him here in verse 22. And they're amazed at his gracious words. They're impressed with his ability and his performance. But they're disregarding the actual fulfillment of the prophecy. That's not what they're impressed with. They don't say, wow, he's the Messiah. They say, wow, he taught good. But even in the midst of this, they say, isn't that Joseph's son? Now, as you read it here in Luke, it may not have the same tone as it does uh, when we see this in Matthew and Mark. The the tone here is not so much um, that they dislike Joseph or that they look down on him for being Joseph's son. And it's not so much that they're uh, saying, wow, man, that's cool. This is Joseph's kid. They're saying a little bit more like, nice boy. Isn't that that Jesus cute? Remember when he was in the carpenter's shop? Oh, that's nice. What a a neat boy. And they're diminishing the reality of who he is in the middle of it. They are impressed. Uh, They're impressed with his uh, abilities, but they're still dismissive. They see him as the local boy, not the Messiah. And he says to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Don't don't come to us preaching, preach to yourself. And you'll say to me, do hear what you did elsewhere, what you did in Capernaum. What he's really saying is, here we are now, entertain us. We want the show. We want you to show us this fancy stuff that you've done for the others. Aren't we better than them? We're your people. Put on the show for us. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Celebrities are regularly dismissed, sometimes even resented by those in their hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in, in Israel in Elijah's time. So, I'm not going to have you turn here, but uh, it's marked on your program. You can just note it there. 1 Kings chapter 17 gives the story of Elijah, <coughs> excuse me, Elijah going to the Sidonian uh, widow. So she, she is outside of Israel. She's a Gentile in the kingdom of Aram, what is uh, now Syria. Uh, and so as, she, uh, it was Phoenicia. But anyway, so as she's going out here, the, the point is not the geography as much as the fact that she is outside of Israel. So Elijah is the prophet to Israel. His job is to call Israel to God. But God immediately after declaring a drought Saying there's not going to be any rain until Elijah says so, then immediately sends him out where he's fed by ravens. Pretty cool story. And then goes to this widow who's about to die because she's run out of food. The famine's wiping her out. But she receives and obeys the prophet's word. Eventually, not immediately, but eventually, even turning to Yahweh herself. Similarly, Elisha, later on, having taken over for Elijah, is a prophet to Israel. And yet, among all the lepers of Israel, they don't come to him and say, please heal me. No, a Gentile soldier comes. This commander of the armies comes. He's got leprosy, a servant that they happen to have captured from Israel, Says there is a prophet in Israel who can heal you if you'll go. So sing, uh, send a message to the king. At this particular time, Aram and uh, and Israel are at peace, a tenuous peace, much like today in the Middle East. Any peace is always tenuous. And he goes to the king, or he sends a letter to, from the king of Aram to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel says that this must be a trap. Because I can't heal anybody. I'm not God. And his servants say. Hey send him to the prophet. And. Elijah says. If he comes here. He'll get this healing. And he will see that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman comes. And Elijah tells him to go dip himself in the Jordan. First he resists. Eventually he does it. And when he does it. He is so blown away. That he says from here on out. I will never bow my knee to any God but Yahweh. There will never be another God. Please forgive me when I have to serve my master and he bows to his God and I'm holding, he's holding onto my shoulder. I'll have to bow, but know that my heart will not be bowing. Both of these stories are saying Israel was too hard-hearted to receive God's good news. So God sent the good news outside. The implication is clear. We know that it's clear because they are furious, murderously so. The implication is you people here in my hometown, even though I have known you, you've got all this religion, but what you need is what John called you to. You need to repent. You need to turn from your religious ways and get on board with God's agenda. It's a matter of the heart not of the performance or the background. And if you don't get that figured out, then you will be the outsiders, not the insiders. So just like then, the message is going to go to those who will receive it, not to those who think they deserve it. This is what gets them fired up. <clears throat> they get so ticked off. Understatement? Because of his implication that they're not worthy of him, that they get up, verse 29, drive him out of the town, take him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they can rebuke him? No, so they can throw him off the cotton picking cliff. They are so angry, they want him to die. Five minutes ago, they're impressed because he's the hometown preacher. Like, you know, imagine, you know, you're, you're in a small town in Oklahoma and this kid named Joel that you grow up with ends up being a pastor of the largest church in America and has books all over the place. you're like, oh man, Joel Osteen, he's, you know, he's from our town. That's kind of the feeling they had. Super famous, super big, wow, he's our guy. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're telling us we need to repent, that we need to get right? That you'd rather go to those Gentile dogs? Are you kidding me right now? That's it. You're dead to me. We're going to make that literal. We're going to throw them off the cliff. Notice what happens here. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Compare this to John 7.30. He does a similar thing. He turns and he walks right through the mob. They got their lynching ropes. They got their stones. They got their, their you know, whatever else they're going to attack him with. No, uh-uh. He doesn't even say that he says anything to him. He just walks right through the crowd. Why? John 7.30 makes it clear. It wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. God did hear exactly what Satan tried to tempt Jesus into getting God to do. He protected his own son. He protected the one that he promised to protect. The devil wanted him to test God. Hey, if he really loves you, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? See if the angels catch you. Let's have a little fun with the Father. Jesus wouldn't do it. But here, when it's time for him to be protected, God protects him. That's a powerful truth, a powerful picture for us. We need to be able to grasp that. So let's, let's get a little quicker here. I'm going to move forward as we go. If I don't, my timer's going to go off again. My daughter won't know how to turn it off, and it'll be a mess. <clears throat> Our core reality, God's grace is for those who receive it, not those who, quote, deserve it understand that the presence of Messiah is good news to the humble, bad news to the proud. And what we see here, and we're going to continue to see throughout this gospel, is that Christ came for the empty-handed. And for those who were caught red-handed, he didn't come for the high-handed. He didn't come for those who think they have it together. He came for those who know that they don't. There is no such thing. Guys, you got to know this. There is no such thing as a strong Christian. There isn't. Only a strong Christ. It's not about how strong you are. It's a matter of how low you can get. How humble you can be in relying upon the one who will carry you. If you are are full of strength in yourself, you know nothing of the grace of God. This applies to us as believers, not just when we're outside of the faith. And if you're honest with yourself, your experience will bear this out. When things are going well for me, when everything's coming together, and I'm walking uprightly before God, I have a tendency to get very lax in my intimacy with God. When things go well, God becomes an afterthought for us most of the time. Oh, sure, we'll give him a a quick thanks. We'll notice a sunset or smell a pretty flower. You know, we'll say prayers before our meals. But it's the suffering, it's the failure that drives us to intimacy with God. It's when we're rejected, when we've got nothing else to hold on to but the hand of the Lord. That's when we develop intimacy with Him. Oswald Chambers referred to that as the blessing of God's absence. That God allows us to fall so that He can pick us up. He allows us to feel alone so that we can find ourselves in Him. So that our faith can be stronger not because we see it in results that's a transactional sort of thing that's not really faith anyway that's the sight but we don't walk by sight we walk by faith and if we really want to to develop the intimacy with God that happens when we're face down it happens when we're broken and there is a price to being in Christ. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it over and over through the book of Luke. Truth does divide. And when we're in Christ, those who are not will reject us. Let's, let's take a look at this. Jesus, in the middle of this, is unfazed. He's, he's not caught up in whether they're impressed with him or not. right? So they're amazed at him, but he's not amazed at their amazement. They're impressed with him, but he's not, their, he's not impressed by their being impressed. Neither is he shattered by their rejection. Why? Why does he remain unfazed? Because Jesus deals in reality. Reality recognizes the value of certain things. Let's roll through these. We've talked about them all, so I'll try not to spend too much time on them. Reality recognizes the value of poverty over popularity. Reality recognized the value of poverty over popularity. This is why Jesus in Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We in the flesh, in the world, tend to look at fame and success and wealth and comfort as if, whether we recognize God actually or not, as if it were a sign of God's blessing. That is not necessarily the case. Those who Really know God are those who recognize that they are no matter what they may have in the flesh poor and blind and naked and they need God to save them reality recognizes the value of poverty over popularity secondly it recognizes the value of conversion over connection conversion over connection it's not about who you are what your background is what church you go to it's a matter of have you converted your way to god's way have you given your heart your mind your life over to him have you become a new creature in christ conversion over connection Thirdly, reality recognizes the value of repentance over religion. Repentance over religion. It's not about your performance. All of these people in Jesus' hometown thought they were connected to him and that would get them special favors. No, you need to be converted. They thought they were together. They're meeting at the synagogue. They're doing the godly things. They're coming together and it looks good on the outside. They're reading the scrolls. They're praying the prayers They're offering the sacrifices, which we don't do now, but they were at the time. They're doing all of these things, but it's not about their religious performance. It's about a repentant heart. You're doing things from your own motives and your own reasons rather than because you cling to the Father. Poverty over popularity, conversion over connection, repentance over religion. Next we see that Reality <clears throat> excuse me, reality recognizes the value of truth over talent. This is where it becomes a divider for them. They're impressed by his talent. They like the talented preacher, and it's sad to me how often people choose churches today over the talent of the preacher, or the talent of the, the worship team. How good is the music? When what we really need is truth. A true intimacy with God, rooted in a true understanding of His Word. Jesus is bringing the Word of truth, and that's the part they don't like. They like the talent. Truth divides, reality values truth over talent. One last thing that, that we see that we could almost overlook. In this story, because it's just that last verse. Notice at the end of um, Luke 4, of this section today, in verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus is unfazed by their threats, just as he was by their rejection, just as he was by their praise because reality values <laughs> reality values God's protection over the world's persecution reality recognizes the value of God's protection over the world's persecution nobody likes to be persecuted nobody likes to suffer likes adversity none of those things are good But when we recognize that we belong to Him, and just as this was true of Christ, what is spiritually true of Him is spiritually true of those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is absolutely no safer place in the world to be. No safer place than in the center of the will of God. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is going to face crucifixion when it's His time. But until that time, until the appointed time when God says this is the best possible situation, in all potential realities in the alleged uh, multiverse, in all the potential infinite parallel universes out there, as if that were true, it's not. It's great in comic books, though. In all of this, the one thing that is best That's what god's going to bring to you every moment of your life before your life before you were ever born in your parents life all of human history i'm really not overstating this it might feel like i am i'm not from the creation of the world All through human history, God has worked every moment of it together to bring you to this place in this moment right now before the truth of God's word. Everything conspiring in your life, good, bad, indifferent, to bring you to a place where you are on your knees before Christ. And... Everything that happens, if you are an unbeliever, is designed by God. Even the evil that is allowed is to bring you to a place of surrender to Him. Once you have surrendered and become His, then everything that you run into is designed, specifically filtered through the will of God before it ever hits your life. To conform you to the image of Christ. Why am I suffering? So I become more like Christ. That's it. This is the purpose and the picture. And in the middle of this, you cannot in any way be unprotected because God has declared that you are His. And until you are, until, how's the English working? Until you have arrived at the appointed time nothing can happen to you because you are held in the hand of God. Reality recognizes the value of God's protection over the world's persecution. What does it matter? This story, why is is Luke including it here? Well, first, Jesus identifies himself as Messiah. That's pretty crucial to the entire story. That's a central truth that we're going to be seeing. Second, Jesus declares that the gospel is for everyone, especially the outsiders. At the very beginning, this is the first incident of public preaching we see here from Christ. And the first thing he says is, the gospel is for outsiders. I've come to proclaim God's favor to those who have no favor from anybody else. From those who are irreligious, who are outside, who are blind, who are imprisoned. The good news is for them. Third, we see that this matters to the heart of Luke and to the heart of God. Because Jesus teaches that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That salvation is not about background or performance. It's an inside job, if you will. So what difference does it make in my daily walk? If these things are true, if this is what Luke has put it here for, what is it about this that makes a difference in my daily walk? First, knowing this story. Seeing what happens to Jesus, understanding what reality recognizes strengthens me in the midst of my weakness because he didn't come for the strong. He doesn't say hey, strong people, holy people, faithful people. He says no, you outsiders, you wretched sinners, come to me. When you're weary, when you're overwhelmed, Come to me. In the midst of my weakness, it strengthens me. Secondly, it humbles me in the midst of my strength. When I think I've got it together, I need to be careful because that's when I'm vulnerable. When I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm strong, that's when I'm weak. I begin to rely on myself, my abilities, my talents, my knowledge, my upbringing. And it moves me away from the heart of God this story humbles me in the midst of my strength. It encourages me when I'm rejected. You see in your memory verse for today, this beautiful reality, John 15, 18, Jesus himself says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That's why you're being hated. It's not you that they're rejecting. It's him in you. He also says they can't hate you because you're one of them they hate me because I'm not so if they hate you they hate you because of me pretty simple right if you're darkness nobody's complaining about how bright you are when you're light it becomes painful it becomes offensive it encourages me when I'm rejected because Jesus was rejected too This is a mark of believers. In James, we're told that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred toward God. I can't be buddy-buddy with the world and also be close to my Lord because His reflected glory in me makes the darkness want to run and hide. You don't have to be preachy to get rejected. You don't have to be that guy out there. Simply being who you are in Christ. Your changes in your life will make people mad. Because the light in you is convicting to the darkness in them. It doesn't matter if you tell them what to do with their life. By what you do with your life, they will believe that you're telling them what to do with their life. If you get saved and you get control of your tongue and you stop swearing and lying, people won't say, wow, you're great at you know, controlling yourself. They will be offended by the fact that you stop swearing and lying. Don't believe me? Try it out. I'm not saying everybody. I'm not saying every time. But you'll see it. You'll notice it. You decide you're going to stop drinking because you feel like that's what God's called you to do, people will be more upset with that than if you preach at them that they should stop drinking. People will be praising you if you go to AA because you think you're an alcoholic. But you bring Jesus into the mix and now they're offended by the exact same thing. Guys, be encouraged. When you're rejected for the sake of the gospel, Jesus says, blessed are you when people revile you because of me when they persecute you, when they say evil things against you because of me, you're blessed. It's a mark. It's a sign that you belong to him. Lastly, this reality assures me when I face persecution or danger. It assures me that God does not forsake me. And even as he protects Jesus here, Jesus isn't even praying for protection. There's no, nowhere in the account does it say that Jesus freaked out and said, Lord, please save me. That's not it. Now, there, he does have some desperate prayers in the garden later, but not here. He's not even praying for help, and yet God helps him. In the middle of this, he just walks through the crowd. I can be unfazed when I know that God is with me. Now, that doesn't mean that's easy. It doesn't mean that we won't have fearful times. Of course we will. It doesn't mean that life doesn't sometimes feel overwhelming. But in the midst of that, I can rest assured that my God is faithful, even when I'm not. That my God is protecting me, even when I'm afraid. That my God watches over me, when all the world seems to be against me. The gospel, the the good news of God's grace that he sends to us in Messiah, Jesus Christ, is not for those who have it together or think they deserve it or have some religious reason to think they're special. Not that at all. It's for anyone who will turn to him and receive it. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you've done today. Reach out. The gospel is for those who receive it. Let's pray together as we close the service. Father in heaven, we thank you that your grace is grace that it's not based on us trying to earn it or being good enough or (laughs) it's not something that we lose when we blow it it's given freely not because of our character but because of your character Father help us to recognize that apart from Jesus we are hopelessly lost Not just in our salvation, Lord, but we are lost in our day-to-day existence. Just putting one foot in front of the other. We need you. We need your presence. We need your word. Help us to get face down. To recognize how poor and broken we are in ourselves. So that we can bathe in your grace. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has not received this good news, who has not taken hold of the gift of your grace that's been offered in Jesus Christ. I pray right now, Lord, that you would move in their hearts, that you would turn the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that they might be able to respond to you. And Lord, I lift up to you those who whether saved or unsaved right now, just feel overwhelmed and broken. Lift up their countenance, Father, that they might feel your encouragement, not because they see the results, but because they've embraced the truth even when we don't see it, Lord, help us to trust it. Thank you for truth. Thank you for telling us in advance that truth divides. That those who are in you will be rejected by the world. And Lord, thank you for warning us that those who are in the world will be rejected by you. Help us not only to not only to be able to receive your grace, Father, but to share that grace with others, to extend that offer that you've made so that all of those who are outcast and downtrodden and imprisoned and enslaved by their own sin, oppressed by those who are in power when they are powerless, those who are disenfranchised, who have been judged because of their failures, Father, the, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the immigrants, those who have been put upon, Father, we lift them up to you. We thank you that your gospel, your good news is for them. It's for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.